Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Andrew Bayliss, who is a songwriter, producer, and engineer based out of Nashville. Throughout his career, Andrew has worked with a constantly increasing roster of superb talent, such as Jelly Roll, Silar, Sleeping with Sirens, Life on Repeat, Nine Shrines, and a ton more. His recent work with Jelly Roll saw a number one single on the active rock charts with the track Dead Man Walking. I introduce you, Andrew Bayless. Welcome to the URM podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. I've heard a lot about you recently. I feel like you're like in a real good time period for your career these days. Um, I I hear your name everywhere right now, which so I just want to say congratulations on all that. Thank you. But what I, but what I hear is I always hear about you in a different kind of context. I hear about you writing, I hear about you producing, I just hear about you doing different things. So what I'm wondering is, what do you see yourself as? Uh, mainly, I'm a producer and songwriter, but I, I don't always produce songs I write on, but I've usually I do. And that's kind of my way of just seeing a song through. Like, if I'm writing on it, I usually produce on it because I want to be the one to, like, you know, finish it. Yep. I mix too, but I've kind of gotten out of that mainly because of time. And also I just don't think I'm that good at mixing. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I would say mainly producer and songwriter. Do you think it's really important in this uh, game of music to figure out that you have like something to really offer in versus what you might be just okay at? I think people need to realize what they're actually good at in rock music especially, there's a lot of egos and a lot of things happen in rock music I don't see anywhere else. And one of them is like the resistance to collaborate in rock music. I'm sure you've noticed it where like yes. usually people want to do it all and it'd be so much better if people would collaborate and, you know, if someone's really good at mixing and someone else is really good at producing, then why wouldn't they just work together and you know, each do what they're good at as opposed to, you know, one person just trying to do it all. But some people can do it all. So there's no right or wrong answer. But for me, I've, I've found that, um, you know, collaborating is what has recently led to the, you know, small taste of success I've found in the last, you know, two years. I think that, like... The reason a lot of people don't collaborate in metal is, well, it's multifaceted. I think that sometimes they're afraid, too, in terms of budget. Like, they're afraid of splitting the budget up. So there's a little bit of greed and financial fear. I think there's also a little bit of fear of them losing the client to that person. And then I also think that there's a little bit of a control freak factor, like... There are some people who feel like they need to do every single thing 
Yeah, me personally, I've always done better when collaborating with someone. Like I've always felt like, and I mean like in business or in music or whatever, I'm always better when I'm working with a good partner or partners. So to me, it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. But I, I do know quite a few people who like, they feel like, no one will do this as good as they can and they're not going to take the time to train someone to do it. And so they'll just do it themselves. Yeah, you'd be correct. I mean, it's definitely more present in rock music. I kind of honestly don't see it anywhere else because... No? And in country music, it's about like literally how many people can work on one song. It's kind of like someone producing and mixing a country song is almost unheard of. And, you know, the the top level, which is good for everyone because that kind of secures everyone's job, I guess. How does it work though when you have that many people in on it? Cause I'm, you know, from in the rock world, I know like, yeah, you're working in the studio with a producer and you're working on this album together. And maybe there's a co-writer that comes in to help with some songs. Maybe it gets sent off to a mixer later, but like this massive team thing is foreign to me. I want to I wanna know how it works. There's definitely better ways to do it, but the way I, I do it usually is, I guess this is just for, goes to rock music, but when I'm working with a rock band, most of the bands I work with are usually one or two people in the band kind of do all the writing. Yeah. That's not every band, but for this example, I'm going to use that. It'll be like me and the singer and the guitar player, right? And I have a lot of people I like to write with here in Nashville, and these people are only songwriters. Some of them produce, but most of them just songwrite. And I found these people from, you know, stepping into the country music scene here a little bit. But a lot of these country people are just straight, you know, from Warp Tour land. Like, they used to be in pop punk bands. Um, I mean, half of the biggest country artists here, their band, their bands that play behind them are made up from like, you know, Dan and Shay's band is from Rocket to the Moon and My American Heart. You know what I mean? Like a lot of those bands people forgot about or like that broke up or just here, you know, making an awesome living just playing for, for country artists. But a lot of these songwriters, same story, like they used to be in bands, bands that I've heard of too when I met them here, you know? But anyway, what I'll do is, if it's me, a singer, and a guitar player, and we're, say we're just making a song, or we're doing like a few songs. Well, I'll bring in another writer. Say we're doing three songs. So like, we'll have three days or four days. I'll bring in someone like my friend, Michael Whitworth, who's like an awesome writer, top line dude. He'll come in with us, so it's four of us, and we'll just make a whole song that day. But because I'm also producing it, instead of us like, making a demo, I'm just actually recording everything for real as we go. Maybe not the vocals, those might be scratch vocals, mm -hmm. but like, we'll just go through it all one day, right? And I'll get most of everything I need. Not Maybe not all of it, but most of it. Then the next day, I'll pick someone different so that a new person has come that day. So the excitement level stays at a high because I keep bringing in new people. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. So we're, we do it again the next day, but because I'm the producer of it and I'm also writing and the band's there, we're still keeping their sound intact. We're just having these people elevate what we're doing and they honestly bring amazing ideas to the table and they're very lyric heavy because I'm in Nashville. So that's what I, that's what I'm trying to change with rock music is stop making songs about nothing, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which a lot of people tend to do. So, you know, and then I'll do that the third day. And then I have these, I have three songs that then the last day I'll have the singer like actually record the vocals we need. And I'll keep like, you know, I'll do a lot of harmonies in the scratch vocal because I'll just keep them, you know what I mean? So then um, the ideal world is I have, you know, say Zach Cervini mixing it, or uh, Cody Stewart is also a guy I work with that lives here who mixes, he, well, uh, the stuff hasn't come out yet, but he's been mixing a lot of stuff for me. Um, and I'll have a guy that I prefer, like one, like Cody or Zach, you know, mix the song. And then usually Mike Collegian masters it. He's great. Yeah. So like, you know, that's not totally unheard of to 
go through that process because I'm still there most of the way. I was about to say, that's not like committee because there's still like the the band and the producer are the common thread on day one, yeah. day two, day three. You're just bringing in a, an outside party to help writing on each day, but you've still got like the glue I guess. Yeah. And that's my favorite way to do it. But there has been times where like I write a song with someone and then they want someone else to produce it, but they want stems. So it ends up being like a co-produced kind of thing that can get a little messy. Usually not if I'm the one that starts it, but I've done it before where I get brought in on something to co-produce, you know, after it's been started. And I get, maybe my brain doesn't work that way, but I'm like, I uh, really like it kind of throws me off, but I I think my favorite way and probably what makes sense to everyone else is to like be the, if you're a producer and, and a writer, just seeing it all the way through. But I like co-producing with other people. I just usually like to be the guy to like start it and then hand it off and have them do, you know, the like I just did a song with this kid, uh, his low spirit. That's his artist name, uh, Josh Landry. And he's an awesome producer and songwriter himself. And to be honest, you know, he doesn't really need me to produce, but we wrote a song together and I started it here. And like, you know, I did my thing to it, knowing that I'm going to hand it off to him and he's going to go crazy on it and recut the vocals and do his thing on it. But yeah, so that's the, you know, that's the... That's the ideal method, I guess. Yeah. But there's been times where there's... That doesn't sound like writing by committee. There's this like idea out there that in country or pop, people write by committee. What does that mean, committee? That's what I, I don't think anybody knows what they mean when they say that. <laughs> but you hear about this a lot. Like when people are talking shit about artists who have other writers or anything, which is stupid to begin with because everyone has always used outside writers in any genre. They make it sound like country music or pop music or some metal bands have like a committee of writers, like round table style or something. Mm. It doesn't sound too accurate to me. So I do work with a lot of country artists. My next song that comes out June 24th is that I actually wrote and produced with Brantley Gilbert and it's like featuring Jelly Roll. And I've been around the country artists long enough to kind of see how they, most of them do things. And most of them, they want to write on all the songs. And country artists write almost every day. Like, they're writing every day. But the songs that get cut and make it to the album, there's always, like, this group of people you see all over the album. Like, one of my friends is Jeff Warburton, and I, I mentioned Michael Whitworth earlier, but you'll find these guys' names, you know, pop up a lot with certain artists. And it's, like, obviously, whatever these guys do together with this artist keeps working because those are the songs that keep coming out, you know? They'll usually do a three or four way, right? And sometimes five way. They also don't go into it that day. Like the artist isn't going in that day thinking they're writing a song for themselves. There's no expectations because they write every day. So obviously the best thing to do is to cut the songs that make sense for their brand as an artist. And then the songs that don't get cut, they're like, man, I love this song, but I would never have a song this rock country because I'm pop country. And then... You know, people like Jason Aldean, who mainly just cut songs, they don't, I don't think he really writes that much of the songs he puts out. You know, it gets pitched to those people, and then they've not wasted their, like, just because they didn't put the song out, they didn't waste their time, because, you know, usually a way bigger artist will, take you know, take the song and put it out. Yeah, why trash it? Yeah, exactly. I feel like in Nashville, what that's different than in L.A. is there really is no... Uh, well, everyone's just a little bit nicer here, to be honest. There's no ego in it. Not the people I write with, anyway. Like, there's never been someone holding up the process because it's not for them. Like, if the song's going, it just keeps going. They might just flip a switch, like, okay, this song isn't going to be for me, but we're going to keep going in this direction. I've probably written more songs in the last two years than I've wrote my whole life, to be honest. So it sounds like it's just a hell of a lot of songwriting and then where the songs end up is kind of like a decision that's made in real time almost. Like writing a song, this might not work for this project, but let's finish it anyways because it's this is a song worth finishing and then figure out what it's for after. Yeah, so, and most of these writers, they're assigned to publishing companies and that's their, that's their publisher's job is that exact thing to like, hey, we wrote this song today with 
so and so, but he doesn't he doesn't think it's for him. Do your thing with it, and then they'll send it around to a bunch of people. And all it takes is having the the right name on it for someone to actually click it and listen to it. And if I just happen to be on the song, then you know that's kind of <laughs> good for me. If yeah, totally. I'm usually writing with people much better than I am, so that's one way I've. I keep getting better is because I keep surrounding myself with people that are way better than I am at it. What do you consider your role as a songwriter in a team? So my main role is the music. Like I can hear a conversation about what they want to make a song about and immediately start creating a mood with music before they even, like I can just put headphones on and hear what they're talking about and then spend like 20 minutes building a a track or like a a verse and a chorus thing and be like, hey, what about this? And right then and there, that's what gets them more inspired and gets more ideas coming out. And I do write melodies and lyrics, but that's more in rock music and country. It's more like music and some melody, but... Take me through this. Like you hear them talking about what they want it to be about and you're like, I got this. So you put on headphones and you get to work. Do you have like... Pro Tools open and like virtual instruments, like do you go in another room with a guitar? Like how do you get from, all right, I heard what they were talking about. I know what to do to the 30 minutes later where you have a verse pre-chorus and a chorus to show them. The first answer to that is probably just experience. But (laughs) I use Logic X, which I think is a lot easier, especially when it comes to making things on the fly for songwriting. Obviously you can get it done in any doll basically, Um, but but you use Logic, so that works. Yeah. Usually I'll do electric so they, whatever they're on, they can. I'm not bothering them at first. Eventually I'm going to start bothering them because I can't, you know, <laughs> just have electric. But I'll make a chord progression either on electric or acoustic or like piano or something. And then from that, start building it literally as fast as I can. Like I have samples of like slide guitar and all kinds of shit I can just change the key of real quick. This is more like the demo version. So I'm using things I've used before just because I'm trying to create an atmosphere um, Mm -hmm. for the song. And obviously someone else will produce it and actually do it over, or if I produce it, I'll redo it. But I'm literally just going as quick as I can to get my idea down so we can start like actually writing to it. Or someone might say... At first, like, I really want a song at, like, the Justin Bieber stay tempo. And I'm like, all right, cool. Then I just think about that tempo and start, you know, basically just building tracks. Like, and for country, it's more, like, about the dynamics between, like, the verse and the chorus and the playing. I play guitar, so, like, lucky for me, I can kind of mimic what I want to do that I see other people do. But I think playing guitar definitely helps making the tracks, especially for country music. But you're trying to get from point A to point B pretty fast. And like, and is that kind of because you want to know if the ideas are valid and inspirational to the other people before you've put too much time into it? Exactly. Because a lot of times they'll be like, Meh, I don't know. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know either. And I've start all over. Next. Yep. We're going to spend most of the time on writing the vocals and like the structure of it. I'd say for that kind of songwriting, the music's important for sure, but it's more just about the chord progression. And Mm -hmm. obviously some people write without a person like me in the room and they just kind of voice memo it. And then they'll have to pay someone later to make a demo to even pitch around. So I find that I can get into a lot more rooms than say someone who, because I just moved here about like a year and a half ago. And I've found that like I can get myself in a lot better situations because I make tracks because we can leave that day with I can pretty much make a demo in like the day of kind of thing right now which because I know I'll never have time to come back to it so I try to finish the songwriting demo that day Mm -hmm. Um, so I have everything always set up at all times like the vocal chains always set up I'll usually use the SM7B through like the Phoenix pre on acoustic or I might have a different acoustic mic set up that week or I don't know. Whatever it is, it's always set up. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. Which I guess is just two microphones, but (laughs) yeah. Uh, So right now I'm writing new material for my band and I travel all the time. And so what I did is I have three identical rigs. I have one for Atlanta, one for my girlfriend's place, and then one for my suitcase. 
and they're all one-to-one identical so that no matter where I am, those are the three places I'm going to be. I'm either going to be at my place, at my girlfriend's place, or on the road somewhere. I don't want there to be any confusion or any like extra time between when I want to sit down to write and write. So uh, the, ri- the rigs are identical and it's always the same thing. Because I don't want to think about that shit. Is it like an Apollo twin or something? Or No, it's this Personas Revelator IO44, which is a super portable one-channel interface. Does the computer power it or does it have its own power supply? No, computer powers it. Oh, cool. Yeah, I was looking at yeah. something like that to take on the road to like... I'll intro you to them if you want. Like, they're really, really cool. They're very small. And they're very roadworthy so far. Like I put it through a lot of abuse and so far it hasn't broken. And I love the fact that it's small and doesn't take up a bunch of space and it has everything I personally need for, I'm not trying to shill right now, just saying like with what you (laughs) said of like always having the same setup or pretty much the same setup and always ready to go. Like I've taken that to the point of like, to the level of anywhere I might be, I have the same setup ready to go. For this purpose, just because setting up, just the time spent setting up is time that you might not be writing. Yep, exactly. And that's, I forget who (laughs) I was with, uh, and I think it was Mitchell Tenpenny. He's he's a good friend of mine, and he's also like really popping off right now. I mean, he's been popping off for a minute in country, but, you know, he's a pretty successful artist. And I remember one day he was like, you know, I had his capo or something, and before he left, he was like, oh, yeah, I need to get that capo back. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, you know, I'm sure you can just buy another one. And he was like, no, it's not about that, man. It's about, like, when I get home tonight, if I have an idea and I need a capo and I don't have it, I just probably just lost the idea. And I was like, "Yes, oh, that makes total sense. Now I feel like an asshole. <laughs> That's exactly right, though. It's like your tools, whatever your tool set is, I think, once you know what your tool set is and what your workflow is and what you need, like you should have a way to always have that wherever you'll be. If writing on the road or or say you're a mixer who mixes on the road or whatever, if you're going to be in different locations but still want to do the same thing, you know, it's it's not very much different than a guitar player on tour who has a guitar tech that sets up their rig for them exactly the same every night and sets up the guitars to the same tuning, same action heights, same everything every night. Like that's what they need to be able to do their job. And so, you know, like as writers or whatever, we don't have writer techs, but like it is important that I feel like our tools are with us wherever we go for that exact reason that your friend said that that's why I have three of the same. Also with my podcasting rig, I have three identical podcast rigs as well. I have one here, I have one in the suitcase, and then I have one up in Milwaukee. And then I have a fourth one as a backup. And it's because I don't want my my podcasting sound to be different anywhere. I want to sound the same no matter where I am. So I totally understand. what. Are you at your house right now? Yeah, right now I'm at my place in Atlanta. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, 
super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. What kind of music is your band? We're extreme metal. What is extreme metal exactly? So if you think of metal as like a, an umbrella term that could house anything from Kiss to Metallica to Godsmack to Iron Maiden to Slayer under it, like it's such a broad term. I like Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like all those bands to some degree. We're we're just in the more like uh, just the more extreme end of things like faster tempos more insane arrangements more screaming less singing kind of stuff it's just you know everything turned up more and darker i think oh cool awesome it's been so long since i've done music that's just heavy with really no melody or anything but i think i'm i might do this ep later this summer with a band with a more up and coming super you know heavy band that my friend i can, I probably can't say their name it's not really set in stone yet but it got brought to me and I was like, oh, that wouldn't make any sense. And I was like, well, honestly, I haven't done it in so long. I probably am full of ideas to, you know, just take what they do and try to elevate it to be like, okay, how do we, how do you get this band that's playing in front of like 400 people a night to get, you know, that it, they're killing it as an independent heavy band. But how do I, how do we also get like, you know, when Slipknot plays a show, you know, thousands of people show up. I'm like, how do you get those people to also like this band without making the band lose the fans they already have? I think I'm just addicted to the challenge. That is a great challenge. Um, by the way, I, I do have to say, though, that just because there's not melody in the vocals... Yeah, right. ...doesn't mean there's not room for melody and hooks. Well, this band's... I think their thing is more like hate. I don't know this <laughs> band, but, like, I'm just saying, in, in general. You are right. In this particular case, it's just about... They're just very, very heavy, and it's very angry, and I'm like, mm -hmm. no, you know, no one's going to stop being angry anytime soon, so... no. <laughs> Quite the opposite. One thing you, you can always count on is, you know, no one's getting their act together anytime soon and no one's going to stop being angry. So like those are two things to write about where like you're pretty much always guaranteed a wide audience because those things are never going away. No one's like, you know, no one's getting sober anytime unless, you know, they're already sober, but I'm talking about for certain demographics, like, you know, people aren't getting sober anytime soon, even if they want to. So it's it's more like how do I write about things that I like I can relate to as well as a wide audience because I can relate to being angry I can relate to you know want, like the sober thing maybe that's more I guess that's more of a you know Jelly Roll's demographic like his hardcore fans are really into like trying to change their life and you know if there was music I feel like he's definitely helped a lot of people and I'm like well man if you can make music and help people and be really successful at it, then that must be the best feeling in the world because... That's the dream. He's not famous because he's some, like, a cock star, like, bragging about how much money he has. He's famous because he writes about, like, these real deep things. I mean, he writes for himself. Like, he's getting his own demons out there when he writes. And you'd be surprised how many people feel exactly the same way as you do. And that goes for like any artist, really. Like a lot of people are scared to write about, like say they have a lot of problems with their family and like their mom and dad and there's a lot of kind of weird fucked up shit going on. And a lot of artists are like kind of scared to bring it out. And I'm like, well, you know how many other people feel the same way and they're also scared to talk about it? So if you do, you're going to connect with these people, but they're going to like really connect to you. Like you're going to be their favorite artist when you start speaking up for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, that's why I think that in the heavy music spectrum, it's the bands like Slipknot and Korn, Metallica, you know, Metallica wrote Fade to Black about suicide, for instance, and Korn and Slipknot have always had their lyrical subject matter be about personal pain, like personal traumas. And when you, you put that kind of 
lyrical content with music that's that intense, it's actually congruent. Like it's congruent to those feelings. And that's why I think it hits, it hits so hard for so many people because so many people can relate to wanting to kill themselves or have had some sort of a trauma with a family member or just have had so much anger they don't know what to do with it. But like the music they make fits that feeling, that atmosphere. So, and I do think that it is so universal that it's far beyond, I guess, this idea I had, at least in, in grade school, that metal was a fringe thing. Like, I realize it's not the same as country in terms of, in terms of overall market share. But I mean, dude, some metal bands are pretty damn big. And I think that it is because those emotions that they're tapping into are, those are universal human emotions, straight up. They just are. Yeah, no, um, you, I agree with all that. Yeah, I mean... They're some of the last heavy rock bands to like, you know, have the those deep lyrics that honestly is just missing now in a lot of new rock music. Yeah, I wonder why. Like I but I feel like it'll come back and the reason I don't mean the genre will come back. I don't what I mean is I do feel like different levels of depth are cyclical almost like certain things like, you know, this is not lyrics, but, you know, at some points, guitar solos are cool. At other points, they're not cool. Then they're cool again, et cetera, et cetera. I think that there's time periods where more surface level lyrics are more, I guess, are easier, more palatable, I guess, to the audience. But when the world becomes a harder place, like, and we're in tougher times, which we actually are right now, we're in a pretty dark time period, now is the kind of time period where darkness i think will resonate more in a lyrical in a lyrical sense no you're right because i literally watched it happen with we had this song dead man walking that with on on the jelly roll album i produced and i literally watched it like he's never been a, a rock artist before he was doing like a southern hip hop kind of thing and i literally watched this dude who's never been on the radio before get put on rock radio and just go up a number pretty much every week until he got to number one. And I was like, well, all right. I think artists think that what people want to hear is a song about nothing when really they want, they, they do want to hear a song about something because I just watched a dude who no, who no one in that world had heard of yet just shoot right up to the charts to like, you know, it took about four months, but he literally was moving a spot a day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, that proves the point that like people do want to hear songs about the more deep stuff that's a little uncomfortable to talk about. Well, the audience can't know what they want before they've heard it too. That's also part of it is like, you, like they, someone who isn't involved, like say some random person in the middle of Iowa who's a Jelly Roll fan or a Slipknot fan or whatever, like they can say that they want another song by one of those artists, but they can't tell you exactly, specifically what song the artist should make. That that's It doesn't work that way. It's more like the artist has to create something and it will resonate with them or it won't. And like, I don't think that the audience is really capable of saying like, I need you to write a song about this trauma I went through and then artist writes song about the trauma they went through and then and then suddenly that resonates i that just yeah, doesn't, yeah. doesn't really work that way i think the uh i i do think that when an artist does decide to be honest and write about the truth um the truth of how they're feeling about things and you know whatever whatever truth that is uh that they're talking about uh if it does resonate with people, even if it takes a while, um, there's plenty of there's plenty of stories where you've heard of thing songs climbing up the charts little by little by little by little by little, and um, and then not moving from the charts just because the message, you know, it might not have been a major artist at the time that the song came out, but the message is so universal and like so ubiquitous, I guess that. It just, it just has legs. And it's not always with dark stuff. Like if you look at the story of Maroon 5, for instance, with like uh, This Love, I believe. What album was that on? 
You said in this moment? No, no. Maroon 5. Maroon 5. Why did I... Sorry, my bad. <laughs> in this moment, though, that's another good example. But I was just saying that it's not all darkness that this works for. I'm just trying to look at the song, This Love. What was that on? Was it called like Songs About Jane or something? Is that their more rock song? It is more of a rock song. It's from like 2005. It's it's more like a, like a funky kind of rock song that came out. Okay, released 2002, Songs About Jane. I was right. Okay, so released in 2002. I know you'll know this song if you heard it. It's huge. Love has taken that one. it. Is it that yes, song? Oh, that song. Yeah. yeah, that song. Fucking great song. But like the story with that song, though, is very interesting because it was released in 2002, but that shit didn't become a hit for several years. Like yeah. several, several years. And of them touring in a van and just like, Pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. The long way is always the best way. Yeah. I guess my point being like, it's not just dark music that sometimes takes a while. Sometimes this kind of happier stuff. I mean, it's still, it's about getting broken up with. So it's sad, but like, but still like the story, that story of a majorly huge song not hitting right away happens more often than not. There's plenty of cases of huge songs where, it took months or years of the song being out there for the public to come around. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I, actually, Maroon 5 has that one song, Payphone, too. Yes. That's like kind of, uh, I guess it's kind of a sad pop song-ish, the lyrics are, but... They have a lot of those, yeah. I Yeah, I like those super pop songs that like technically make you feel good until you read the lyrics and you're like, oh, this is like a whole different thing that's going on. And that's what, I mean, that's what I like about that kind of stuff is when the lyrics don't quite match up with the melody and the mood, which in a way creates its own mood of it. Like, you know, the contrast. Yeah, I really like that kind of thing. I actually think Baroon 5 are great about that because like this love, yeah, especially is such a like, it's like got beautiful melodies and it's so catchy and like it's, if you see the video, you think it's about this dude and his hot girlfriend and their great relationship. <laughs> but really, no, it's about him getting his ass dumped and heartbreak uh, and basically not not being able to understand why or how that could possibly happen. But I feel like Maroon 5 are really good at doing that. Most of their songs have like a little bit of sadness in them, which I think also is part of what makes them so relatable. Most people on earth can't relate to things that are just 100% happy. Yeah. Yeah, I think. No, no, you're right about that. I, I mean, you kind of have to write about what you know, and that's more what, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I relate more to the depressing. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> super depressing um, vibes and like lyrics and stuff, because uh, that's just how I've, you know, I kind of grew up thinking I should hate everyone for no reason, which makes no sense, but... I was like, yeah, Slipknot, you know, Mudvayne, Corn. Yeah, I hate everyone. All right, but not really. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, you know, struggled from clinical depression my entire life. So music that kind of speaks to that has always spoken to me. And um, music that doesn't speak to that, like party music or whatever, uh, has always been like, eh, I just, I don't, just don't see, I don't get it. But I know people who do get it because they love to fucking party. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, do you get involved with lyrics? Yeah, I do. I would say most of the time, like, there's someone in the room that's really the leader of the lyrics. That's kind of really... But I, what I am good at is having a, an idea. I'm like, what if in the pre-chorus you start coming at it from this angle? And they'll be like, oh, cool. And then they'll just start... Like thematic angle? Yeah, like, <clears throat> um, I guess for an example, like, I we I usually write the from the chorus backwards... So that way I know exactly what we're leading up to. But there's just different ways to lead up to things. Like you can <clears throat> you can kind of, you can have a song that's like, you know, kind of asking yourself why in the verse, why did this happen? Why did that happen? And then the pre-chorus is maybe it's because of this. Maybe it's because of that. And the chorus is like, you know, all I know is I don't want it to happen, blah, 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 blah. And you can kind of spin it all around with, I stopped asking myself why because now I'm, I don't know. I'm going off on a tangent here, but maybe that makes a little bit of sense to you. No, this is just fascinating to me. I love hearing 
about how people think about their songwriting process and structure it. So it's almost like that ex- that particular example is more like every section of the song attacks a different, I guess, a different question or answer around the thought of this thing happening, whatever that thing is, like whether it's a traumatic event or what. Yeah. And there's a badass songwriter here. His name's Trent Tomlinson. He's like country writer. And he was an artist too. He said something to me the other day that I was like, man, that makes so much sense. How did I not think about it that way? And he said, whatever the hook is, if you can't say every, the first line of your verse and then say the hook, say your, your second line of the verse, if you can't say every line of the song and then say the hook after it and have it make sense, then you need to change the line. And I was like, damn, I've never thought about mm-hmm. it that way, but that makes total sense. That's what we're all trying to get is some song that's like this big cohesive picture. And what better way to do that than to like make sure every line. The DNA is all there. Yeah. Yeah. If every line of that song, you can literally say the hook after it and have it make sense. You probably are on the right track. And I was like, how did I never think of that? That's great. That's interesting because since I don't really write lyrics, I write music and I work with people who write the lyrics. I have a similar sort of idea when it comes to the musical side of things. So one of my biggest uh, pet peeves about modern metal records and songs is that very few bands write songs anymore like in the in what we think of as songs with like a beginning, middle and end chorus versus like song uh a lot of them are just like riff a riff b riff c riff d riff e riff a riff b riff a slower riff b riff a and just like lyrics about whoever the fuck whatever like no beginning no end oh the old the thousand part song (laughs) yeah yeah that's i can't stand that i like i need songs and so one of my pet peeves is if you take a modern metal record i feel like even if there's some similar similarities in the arrangements, right? Like double bass, or heavy chugged guitars or whatever, right? Like there's some things that are just kind of in metal songs. Like still, you should not be able to cut like riff, like the third riff from song five on the album and copy paste it into like, copy paste it over the fifth riff of the first song and have it fit. You shouldn't be able to do that. But you can on so many. And to me, that tells me these are not really songs. These are more just like vomits of, like riff vomits. Because a song, in my opinion, has to have a unique identity. And everything about it has to be unique to that song. Like, you you should hear two seconds of it and know what song you're listening to. And it should all work together like that. It's a little different than what you just said about how every line of the verse should connect, be able to connect to the hook. But I feel that same way about the music itself and the riffs. Like the riffs should only work with that song that they're in. You shouldn't be able to copy paste, you know, the chorus riff from song eight into the bridge of song two (laughs) and no one know the difference (laughs) yeah like interchangeable riffs (laughs) yeah i mean that might come from like some guy in the band has a bunch of riffs and they're trying to use them all on their album you know what i mean yes that's exactly just to make someone just to kind of babysit his ego probably that is it i guess the reason i'm bringing that up is because i feel like that cohesiveness you're talking about in lyrics that you would get by being able to connect the hook to any line in the verse I feel like you should have that cohesiveness in every aspect. What do you think? No, 100%. Yeah. That thing about every line coinciding with the hook can also be applied to like music. Like there shouldn't be like, there shouldn't be any like guitar thing going on. That's not like, I mean, this is just my opinion, but there shouldn't be any guitar part that's like battling the vocals. Mm -hmm. Like it should be the most, like literally... That's exactly why when I write a song or we're doing like scratch vocals, because then I go back and I start changing the music to fit even more with the vocals, like even the kick drum on the, to line up with the vocal pattern, you know, not obviously not every word, but like whatever the kick drum's doing should be like helping the vocal. Cause a lot of times I'll make a drum beat and then I'm like, well, now that we have this melody, I have this fucking random kick just kind of coming in right like 
you know, at a weird time when his word lands a beat after it. So I'll just move it. You know what I mean? Yep. If I am doing live drums, which a lot of rock bands I work with, we don't, but you know, some I'm doing it more and more now, but I do drums at the very end. So that way the drummer's literally playing yep. to the song. I think that turns out better than, and especially in rock music, a lot of the drummers just want to just go ape shit the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's cool. You can do that, like, you know, on your own time, but... Start a YouTube channel, you know? Like, if you're a drummer, start a YouTube channel and play crazy shit on your YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them do that now. So I learned this from Dan Cornaff because I spent, like, 60 days with him with my my the last band I was in doing this album. So I literally was getting, like, the recording school of a lifetime, you know? What he does is he has the drummer do a take of the song, like, just getting it all out, like playing fills the whole time. You'll be like, you know, just play fills the entire time, basically. And then he'll be like, now play a take where you play no fills. And then he'll have him play a take where he plays, you know, a little bit of fills. But he can use that fucking, the drum take of the, all the fills and kind of pick and choose. If he wants a different fill, he can go to that one. And the, and the drummer also got to get it all out of their system. And I think that, might be more the reason he does it. That, that makes perfect sense. Getting that stuff out of your system is a really, it's like one of those psychological things where if someone is just putting that all over a song because it's in their system and they can't think straight before doing that, sounds like, <laughs> something, sounds like something else. <laughs> Gotta, <laughs> it's just making me think of something else. It's like, get it out of your system so you can think clearly. <laughs> Yeah, so Jack, the guitarist for Sleeping With Sirens, I did their album that it comes... Oh, I have, one song is out now, but the rest of it comes out this summer. And I did like seven or eight songs on it, then Servini did the rest, and Servini mixed it. But Jack is one of those people where you give him a guitar and he just starts playing, you know, crazy shit. But you kind of just got to let him do that for about 10 or 15 minutes, then be like, all right, dude, now let's like start recording, because yep. otherwise... <laughs> but... I mean, I guess I'm a little bit the same way. Awareness is key, right? We all have that tendency, especially when we have something new, like the guitar player who just got the whammy pedal and is having fun with it. And so somehow that whammy pedal ends up on every song. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it is better to just let them have their fun. And w once they're like, once that fun subsides, then actually think about, all right, what are the one or two cool spots on the entire record for, to use this whammy pedal? Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, he also there's, there's a one other thing I've noticed kind of along these lines. Uh, I do think it's very important to write a lot and write often and to it, like, I thought it was cool that you said that these country artists are writing every day. So one problem that I have found in the rock and metal world is that not everybody writes every single day all the time. So you'll have bands, and tell me if you've noticed this with rock or metal bands, is you'll have one or two people in the band who do like 80, 90% of the writing and always are writing. And so, you know, they're used to having their riffs cut. They're used to having entire songs they've written scrapped. They're used to it. They write so much stuff that like, you know, maybe 40% of it gets used, if that. But then you have other members of the band who don't write very much. They'll write like two songs a year or like five riffs a year. And so those riffs and those songs are far more precious to them than, <laughs> than, than the other person who writes oh, all the time. yeah. And so I know all about that. Yeah, and they might not be as good because they don't write as often, but you have to deal with way more psychological finagling to get them to chill out about those songs because, you know, less songs equals more precious about the songs. You have dealt with that. Oh, yes. How do you deal with that? Well. <laughs> By your silence, I'm getting ready for the answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Asking for a friend. In the past, there's been situations where I might pull the guy aside in the band that pretty much does everything. But like, hey, man, can I ask you a question? Why are these other guys here? Because so far I've mm -hmm. played everything and you're writing, me and you are doing everything. And they're just sitting behind me talking really loud, drinking beer. Yep. So like, why? <laughs> 
what I do forget is sometimes those people that chime in with some weird idea out of nowhere can be very helpful. However, I think the situation I'm thinking of was not the case. But another way is if someone's set on what they have and it's just not it, you almost got to take an idea that is it and be like, let me show you why that, like, just let me mess around with this idea and just build it up to the point where they're listening to it and they're like, okay, yeah, you're right. Like sometimes you have to like, you know, finish, if you're doing a whole album and you're just not seeing eye to eye, you kind of have to be like, listen, let's do this idea and let me just do the whole thing. And if you guys hate this, then we'll just start recording all the things that you guys want to record. And usually so far it's never been like, yeah, man, nah, we still want to do, you know, our idea that we made like five years ago that's never been recorded because no one wants to record it. <laughs> a little bit of diplomacy. What I noticed is you're never like, man, this your idea sucks. It's probably not a good idea. <laughs> I mean, there's just no benefit to that. No. Like, I know producers that do do that and make people feel like shit, <sighs> and I find it hilarious. However, I don't like to do it that way because I wouldn't like being talked to like that. Um, Me neither. And you know, like, here's another thing. You're working with an artist, you're making a record or single, whatever. There's going to be a life to that after it comes out where the artist is going to hopefully be supporting it and helping it become successful in the world and then come back to you a few years later for another round. I find that like making artists feel like shit in the studio or dropping bombs on their interpersonal workings over sensitive topics like someone's shitty song, you know, like you're pushing them one step closer to breaking up or having band issues. And uh, I feel like the last thing we want to do as a producer or hired songwriter or whatever is to cause problems for the band. Yeah, exactly. Um, you want the song to come out, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You want the song to come out. Yes. You want the band to be able to tour and, uh, and not give up, basically. Yeah, and it's hard because the bands I work with, like Varsity and Savage Hands, who are like just now starting to get noticed, like it's not all like fun and games out there on tour, you know? It's like pretty, I've done it. I mean, I did it before. Like I toured for like eight years and played in front of almost no one every night. So I know exactly how they feel. And I'm like, hey, man, this is just like, this is just right now. Like it's all about, <clears throat> it's not about showing up to the show and doing what I used to do, being like, oh, there's five people here. This sucks. I hate my life. I'm going to get drunk. Why does anyone like my band? We're amazing. <laughs> Instead, being like, whoa, there's there's five people here that know my band and I'm in Nebraska. Like, you know, it's all about changing your... Yep, reframing that. Because being negative about it is literally going to help nothing. Well, the thing is, when you're in that state, right, in in that, you're in a vulnerable state where you could look at it as... I'm in Nebraska and there's five people here. What the fuck am I doing with my life? Versus <laughs> yeah, that was me. <laughs> me too at times. Like uh, versus I'm in Nebraska. How the fuck did people in Nebraska even hear about me? This is awesome. Like it's only five, but like, hey, that's awesome that like anybody has heard of me in Nebraska. Let's make it to where next time it's 10, etc. When you're in that position, you're vulnerable to negativity. So, and I think that that's when it's especially important to like make the decision to reframe how you're going to approach it. Yeah, exactly. And I try to encourage those artists to like, you know, think that way by trying to set an example, even though I don't always do the best job of, of that. But my manager always says, because he manages Jelly Roll too, and he's always like, man, everyone is literally just one song away which is kind of true because you never know what song is going to like be that song, you know, yeah, like you for, for Jelly Roll, it was that song, Save Me, which I met him right after that. And he decided to put out an acoustic song with all singing, which he had never done before. And he recorded it that day. They shot, I think my manager shot the video for it that night. And then against everyone's wishes, he put it out the next day and now it's platinum. Because Damn. right place, right time during COVID, impulsive decision, just put this song that's barely, you know, mixed and mastered out, but it was such a good song that like, and he put it out at the right exact time. And, you know, that's literally 
when I say like it slingshotted his career, like, you know. It slingshotted his career. I mean, it opened up a whole world for him. And it's a world where like, you know, I can go somewhere and people find out I produce Jelly Roll and all of a sudden I'm important. You know what I mean? When that's never been the case before. I've always been like, I've always felt I was like, you know, obviously I always thought I'm good at what I do, but I just wasn't, it was like one, you know, failed attempt after another of like trying to develop bands and do these albums in my little basement. And, you know, I might've gotten a song on Octane here and there, but I never really had a big artist give me a chance until I met him because most of the bigger artists don't want to work with you unless you already work with bigger artists which is, you know... Yeah, got to have some proof. Yeah, it's a weird way of thinking. But you can understand from their perspective, they're trying to take the risk out of the situation. I do, but I also see it as, man, instead of us going to this guy who's done countless gold records and, you know, probably we won't even see the guy the whole time because his assistant would do it all. Maybe we should go with this kid who's, you know, will spend fucking... 15 hours a day on it and yeah literally his life depends on it and we can you know honestly we could probably pay him way less money and he'll be totally okay with it and we'll have someone that's devoted their entire life to it because it's the biggest thing he's ever done that should be the way people i would think that way if i was an artist but i'm not so i understand both sides because i understand why an artist you know who has a lot to lose there's a lot riding on this like you know, have families, crew, all these things to pay for. Like, a song is important, real important. Are we going to give a chance to someone that has no real track record? We must really believe in this person if we do. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so if there is someone, though, that they really do believe in, and then they don't go with them because they're scared, that's fucked up. Like, I do think that artists should take a risk on people who are not as far along in their careers if they really believe in them, if they really believe in them. Don't work with people you don't really believe in. But if they really do believe in them, they just haven't had, like, they just haven't had a huge hit yet, but you know, like, this person will, then you should give them a shot, in my opinion. Yep. I mean, it, yeah, it comes down to a few different things, but... Or okay. I think what I what I would do as an artist is have... The, the big name dude do three or four songs and then give someone else a chance to do the rest. Yep. And also probably more cost effective that way than just have the, you know, the same dude mix it all. But, you know, I can't control that. But what I can control is now that I'm in a position, I can have people who haven't really, that I think are awesome at what they do and haven't necessarily had a chance yet. And I can be like, hey, you know, you should mix this because... I've actually never heard your mixes with like really good, you know, tracks being sent to you. I'm sure that the mixes I have heard that sound pretty awesome. Some fucking kid sent you with a Focusrite and an SM7B and you just, you know, pulled, you took, you know, straight garbage and turned it into something that sounds pretty good. So imagine what's going to happen when I send you what I did, Yep. you know, through like the assortment of preamps and mics I have and all that stuff. And, you know, you'd be surprised what these kids can do. They haven't had the right tools to show what they can do because they're usually just, they're stuck in this lane of like only mixing bands that pay like, you know, $300 a song and they're kind of stuck there. And So, so then that brings up a question I have and then going to need to wrap this up after that. But I think this is a good question to end this on, which is, who gave you that chance? That would be Jelly Roll for sure. So Jelly Roll is who gave you that chance. Yep. That's really cool. I mean, look, at some point, someone's got to give you a chance. Like I remember Monty Connor, the A&R guy, Roadrunner, gave me a chance back by signing my band and that changed my entire life. Like him giving me that chance and we didn't have like this massive track record or anything, but uh, he... He went to bat for us, and that was a life changer. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, like you were just saying with like Jelly Roll and stuff, there's like your life before and your life after like that having happened. Yeah, exactly. And they're much different. Yeah. You got to give people a chance when you feel like they're the right person for the chance, I think. It's important. I mean, that is how music keeps evolving, too. And 
is by people taking risks on other people. Yeah. So, I mean, the best thing I can do is do the same thing for people, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, Andrew, I think this is a good place to uh, end the episode. I, uh, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It was a pleasure talking to you. And I would, you know, I'd love to do this again sometime. I feel like we could have gone on for like six hours or something. Oh yeah. I'd love to, man. It sounds awesome. I'll do it anytime you want, man. Just hit me up. Awesome, man. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you more about songwriting and continue the conversation basically. But uh, thank you, sir. Awesome. Thanks for having me, dude. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy and, of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.